0: I'm Marianne Kolbisak-McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Axel Worth, Chief Security Strategist at medical device security firm MedCrypt, and Vidya Murthy, who is Chief Operating Officer of MedCrypt. We'll be discussing a recent draft guidance issued by the Food and Drug Administration for the Cybersecurity of Pre-Market Medical Devices. So for starters, what stands out about this new draft guidance versus the FDA's draft guidance issued in 2018 that updated even earlier guidance for the cybersecurity of pre-market medical devices? Anything about this guidance that stands out versus the earlier versions? Axel, would you like to start?
1: Sure. Thank you. Uh, So that's a very good question. I think that's a question that deserves some, some attention. Uh, Clearly, this new guidance is a significant change compared to 2018, 2014. Not only is it much more detailed, but we went from nine pages in 2014 to now 45 pages. So there's much more substance, much more detail in this new guidance. But it also shows an evolved thinking on the side of the FDA, what actually cybersecurity means for medical devices and what medical device manufacturers need to uh, strive for if they want to deliver secure and therefore by extension safe devices to the market.
2: Video,
0: what do you think?
2: Having heard for however many years, we were all anxiously waiting for this guidance to come out. I think there were a couple of things that go beyond just the kind of requirements. The, the fact that they've renamed this as having quality in the title of the guidance, I think is indicative of where they are positioning cybersecurity as truly a patient safety imperative as opposed to what I think for a long time device manufacturers have kind of put cybersecurity in its own special category because it's its own special unicorn, right? So I think that that to me was quite surprising. And then Axel alluded to it, right, that the growth in how much is included in this is really kind of mind-blowing. And I think it's clear the direction this is going. It's not going to be next year they come back with a three-page version of this. It's only going to get more and more robust and mature as both the manufacturers and the regulators kind of change their view of how cybersecurity impacts devices.
0: So with that said, again, this new draft guidance is much meatier than what we've seen in the past. Vidya, from your perspective, what kind of stands out? Are there certain features within this draft guidance, you know, certain recommendations that stand out to you as potentially making a big impact in terms of improving the cybersecurity of medical devices
2: in the pre-market process? Yeah, one of the ways I like to think about um, requirements, if you will, is what is a technical requirement that you design into your device and what is kind of the process part of that? And having looked through the guidance and kind of made a mental list of what is in fact kind of non-technically driven, I'm kind of blown away in particular with all the stuff around the secure product development framework and this notion of really embedding cybersecurity throughout the device's life cycle, effectively. Devices have a very particular development methodology, if you will. So the reference to that and the alignment with that, I think just just goes to the manufacturers having to, we're kind of all speaking the same language now, right? It's no longer bolt-on security, however you want to. It's within this existing mechanism that you already have. Here, here's where you should live. So the SPDF was especially, I think both surprising and also really refreshing because I think it, it helps device manufacturers put this in the right place.
0: And Axel, from your perspective, what stands out about this draft guidance in terms of recommendations that if they're actually implemented by device makers, it could make a big impact on cybersecurity of these products.
1: Yeah, expanding on what what Vidya was talking about, right? I think we're seeing an evolution in how the FDA looks at at security and frankly, how medical device manufacturers should be looking at security uh, that it has become really an essential part of the entire device development from concept all the way to production, delivery, and and maintenance. Uh, So Security is not a single event. You're not producing a secure device, ship it, and hope for the best. You are developing a concept of security for the device and the device's ecosystem that needs to be maintained over the useful life of of the device, right? So it's really about designing security in from the get-go, from the very early stage of the development cycle, the SPDF, as Video was saying, rather than trying to bolt on security and provide last-minute security documentation to the FDA for device market approval, and then, then hope that the device is not going to get challenged once it's out and installed in the hospital.
0: So with that said, what cybersecurity controls and best practices do medical device makers tend to skimp on the most from what you see today? And how might this guidance help with that?
1: So I think it's, it's really about specific controls, but also the overall approach to security, right? That security really has to touch all aspects of the devices. It's not good enough to do one thing. it it all has to flow together. Give a simple example. If you're thinking about encrypting data and transit data that is being sent by your device, it is not just a matter of picking the right cryptographic algorithm that gets designed into your software for the device. It is about questions like how do you manage, for example, your cryptographic keys during production and how do you make sure that they get put on, on the device in a way that it doesn't expose the device to any risk as as part of that process. So there's really many considerations and process issues that are very, let's say, comprehensive that need to be addressed. Specifically, FDA is calling out things like authentication of users to devices or devices to other devices, Um, authorization, right who is allowed to do what within the device ecosystem. And again, it's humans, but also devices talking to each other, the use of cryptography, The assurance of code and execution integrity, make sure that the software you put on your device is not compromised, assurance of confidentiality, and then security event detection and logging, right? make sure that not only the device is as secure as can be for its given use case, but also that a device can actually detect and report out if it gets compromised. Resilience and recovery, things like a fail-safe mode or things like special features that aid with quick recovery if a device was compromised. And then lastly, maintenance of the device and maintenance of the device's security posture, things like updatability and patchability you know, to make things easy for the user of the device to keep the device secure.
0: So Vidya, anything that Axel didn't mention that you wanted to sort of point out as well?
2: Yeah, um, Axel briefly alluded to it, but this notion of system. So it's not no it's no longer you can th- talk about your device in isolation. You really have to think about kind of the broader impact. And I think in the past, the FDA has kind of spoken to this notion of, in the last version of this, right, there was that risk rating of depending on your device's impact. But now they're just saying in totality You must talk about the device in its ecosystem. It can't be sitting in this isolated lab in the bottom of a basement somewhere. And I think that that's a big deal because it really changes the types of controls that you would want to implement and the scale with which you kind of have to have a solution in place. So I found that to be kind of a, I don't want to say surprising, but an unexpected inclusion in this.
0: And when it comes to different types of medical devices, what are some of the more worrisome ones these days? What types of medical devices are most worrisome to you from a cybersecurity perspective and why? I
2: think for me, it probably has a lot to do with devices that historically have operated within the four walls of the hospital now being sent home with a patient. So to put a little more context on that, imagine a patient is inside a hospital And the device manufacturer said, hey, I know my my device is going to be connected, but it's on the hospital's network and the hospital has a robust level of controls around it. So I'm going to choose to rely on that instead of building security into my device. COVID comes along, devices are now being sent home with patients instead of having them come in for reasons. Where's the security now from the network? It, It no longer exists. It's sitting inside your patient's home. And we can't reasonably put the burden on patients to try to say, hey, manage the security of your device. That, that seems like a non-starter for a variety of issues, not the least of which is the devices just weren't designed to do that. So I think for me, that, that's probably the most concerning new population that, that's kind of coming into play. And I, I don't envision that going away just as we've kind of changed how healthcare is delivered now. I think it's only going to increase in volume.
0: And Axel, for you, what's most concerning? What types of medical devices and cybersecurity issues are most worrisome?
1: So I think that the risks fall into two categories. One are devices where a cybersecurity event could directly harm a patient. You know, think about pacemakers, uh, pumps, ventilators, these kind of devices. So clearly that is, you know, a high impact scenario. But I think we have not seen any evidence that these kind of scenarios are happening outside of security research. I think the Other scenario we need to look at is the impact on care delivery. And those are the ones where we have plenty of documentation actually that they are indeed happening, right? So, a general attack on a hospital, uh, on an IT system where medical devices get caught up in the attack, medical devices are compromised not because they are targeted as a device, but because they fit the profile of the attack, which then leads to shutdown of the device and the clinical service the device is supporting. And we have had plenty of examples of hospitals having to divert ambulances because their emergency rooms were down, had to reschedule patients for certain procedures because the affected devices were down. Uh, I think the most prominent example was probably the uh, the WannaCry outbreak at the uh, National Health Service in the UK in 2017 where, again, nobody was targeting medical devices. Actually, nobody was even targeted targeting healthcare in specific, but healthcare, IT infrastructure, and certain devices perfectly fit the structure of the attack and the profile what the attacker was looking for and, therefore, got compromised. And, therefore, if I remember correctly, 81 hospitals within the UK had to completely or partially shut down for a few days.
2: And I think Axel's uh, bringing up WannaCry is a great way to think about we don't necessarily know how attackers think. They're not saying, hey, let me go after this patient. Let me shut down this care delivery. They're just trying to find a weak point. And uh, that, that, that's a fundamentally different way of thinking compared to how most defenders are, are kind of trying to, to keep the hospital operational and worry about clinical uptime and ensuring these devices deliver.
0: And what about the recommendations that manufacturers provide a software bill of materials for their medical devices, for the various components, the software components that are included in these devices? How important is that and why? Not to be
2: hyperbolic, WannaCry, like Axel mentioned, shut down an entire health system for a country. It's a matter of time before there's WannaCry 2.0. And I think The underlying intention of having a software bill of materials is that you can answer the question when that happens, hey, which devices are impacted, rapidly figure out how to triage those and hopefully avoid having 81 hospitals go down. So I think it's absolutely critical. It is one step in a journey, however, and we need to think about the totality of vulnerability management and and what kind of that takes. So we talk about people process technology a lot. This is one of those technologies that will enable us identifying issues faster, but it still often will require some processes around it to, to really figure out what to do with that knowledge and how to then
0: resolve the issue. And Axel, any thoughts about how granular you'd like to see a software bill of materials for medical devices when it comes to cybersecurity?
1: I think we've gotten that answer back in December, right, when the log for shell vulnerability and, and the log4j um, Java tool was was announced, right, that these kind of tools and correspondingly these type of vulnerabilities can be deeply embedded in literally billions of, of devices, healthcare and, and, and outside of healthcare in this case. And being able to identify those correctly requires quite some depth of the software bill of material. Without that depth, you never will get a complete answer. Having said that, is that complete depth for us as an industry attainable, let's say, out of the gate? you know, I don't think so. I think we need to crawl before we walk and then eventually run. But I think SBOM is of critical importance to security management. I think there's no doubt we have to do it. But also, clearly, there are some practical and operational challenges around scalability, as in how many manufacturers can actually deliver a reliable SBOM, how many Healthcare organizations can actually effectively ingest and analyze it and operationalize the whole process around it. And then to your point, how deep does the s have to be? Right? So I think we're facing a lot of operational challenges in implementing it, not saying we shouldn't, we definitely have to, but scalability is going to be, I think, something that, that will keep us busy for a couple of years to come.
0: And finally, is there one thing that wasn't covered in the FDA guidance that you would have liked to have seen addressed?
1: I think one question that clearly is still open is the question of enforceability, right? When will medical device manufacturers see effect of the FDA's thinking on cybersecurity in the market release, market approval of their devices, and potentially even in the post-market management of devices? In the field. Right now, we know the FDA is looking at cybersecurity. We know FDA is training their staff to be more aware of cybersecurity and understand it better and ask the right questions. I think we as an industry collectively still need to understand how that over time will translate into enforcement action by the FDA, either as part of the approval process or as part of the, the post market recall kind of process.
0: But for you, Vidya? Was there something not covered in the FDA guidance that you would have liked to have seen addressed? The only thing I would add to, to Axel's point
2: is this uh, breadth of coverage. So the last version of this was speaking mostly to 510K submissions. In in five bullets, they kind of include the totality of all device devices out there, right? And I don't know that they really talk more about what you're supposed to do with some of the Differences and nuances of how these devices operate. So, I think a little bit more clarity from an expectation perspective of how these devices are going to function clinically might, might offer a little bit more guidance. And, and the other thing, and I, and I know it's not the FDA's to really say it, for sure not in a pre market document, but the collaboration between device manufacturers and where these devices then operate, I think has consistently proven a challenge for device manufacturers to understand how to build security into their devices. I don't know how the FDA has jurisdiction over that because I don't think they legally do, but I think some acknowledgement that part of the design process could probably benefit from better understanding clinical operation from a technology perspective would, would probably benefit kind of the longevity of the solution working for um, for some of these devices.
1: I just want to pick up uh, Vidya's first point, which, which is actually quite important, right? The span of devices that are covered under this still draft pre-market guidance. That is everything from the highest risk class, you know, devices that require PMA type of process and approval, you know, all the way to uh, even 510k exempt devices, right? So the FDA has stated clearly in the introduction of this pre-market guidance that really cybersecurity security applies to all devices, no matter of their regulatory classification. Well,
0: thank you very much, Axel Nvidia. I've been speaking to Axel Wirth, NVIDIA, Murphy. I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.